On the show today, Rich and I are joined by Mark Hemingway to discuss the last Beatles song and we drink a left hand. I'm your host, Brad Jackson. You're listening to the November 13th, 2023 edition of Coffee and Koshan. So, Rich, this week we are joined again by our resident music expert, Mark Hemingway, to talk about something near and dear, I think, to all three of us, the last Beatles song. So uh, let's talk about how this came to be first, Mark. Um, this is essentially a song that started as a demo um, that John Lennon had recorded on an old school tape player at his house way back in the 70s, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Back when he was living in uh, his famous apartment, you know, in, in New York. Um, you know, he, I guess the story there is he never like stopped, you know, playing music, you know, per, or writing music per se, but he did kind of like stop music professionally there for a few years. I mean, I think it was because, uh, you know, his son, Sean was young and he, he wanted to sort of step away from things for a little bit. But, you know, of course, you know, when you're, you've got that kind of gift, you never really stop. And so, yeah, he would pop up a tape recorder on the piano in his apartment and he would, you know, write things. And there were a few songs that he wrote that, you know, um, long after he died, um, you know, surfaced as, I think um, uh, Yoko Ono gave them to the other members of the Beatles. And, and I think these same tapes were, I don't know if you remember, like Free as a Bird that came out yeah. in the 90s and those other, like, you know, Lost Beatles songs. Um, they were kind of from the same sort of batch of stuff that, that Lennon had done. And this one was also, you know, from, you know, that same sort of, you know, time period, same sort of cassette, you know, thing that produced the other ones. It's just that um, the reason why they didn't get around recording this one was because, you know, he was recording into, you know, an old school, you know, tape recorder in the 70s. And it wasn't like, you know, a high tech thing. And so they had trouble separating the piano from the, you know, vocal melody. And and now I guess Peter Jackson was the guy that came to the Beatles and said, you know what, look, guys, we got the, the AI and machine learning tools that we can actually pull the vocal track away from it. And, and that got them really excited, I guess. Yeah, I want to talk about that for a minute, because there was a lot of discussion uh, before this song dropped in the in the weeks beforehand that um, it was being made possible because of AI. And so a lot of people thought like, oh, well, then this isn't really John singing. They, they made up John. But that's not the case at all. It was that Peter Jackson developed this technology to pull apart vocal and, and audio tracks, well, just audio tracks in general, that, um, that, that weren't uh, pull apartable, I guess, weren't separable. Um, and he said, hey, guys, we can do this. We can now take his audio, his, his vocal track, pull it apart from the piano that was all recorded at once and you guys can have it separately. That's, that was the AI magic here, not a, a fake John Lennon, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I kind of understand people's confusion because this, you know, as soon as chat GPT and, and, you know, AI started, you know, coming online in a major sort of, you know, commercial way to ordinary people a couple of years ago, you know, of course, one of the first things people were doing were like, let's train AI to write another Beatles song. And then we'd uploading these things to YouTube. So like, you can see why the confusion was out there, but, but no, that's exactly it. I mean, just before, you know, using the crappy cassette tape, if you're in a studio, there's, there's things that you can do using, you know, traditional studio tools like EQ and, and other things that can, you know, um, that can sublimate certain frequencies and raise other frequencies, but you can't like fully separate uh, the frequencies. Um, to some extent, the AI machine learning might have been like, 
filling in the timber of, of, uh, you know, Lennon's voice or something like that, um, that, that where maybe wasn't there to make it sound normal. So it might not be like a hundred percent, you know, his voice, but you know, it's, it's by and large his voice. What do you think about this song? I, I, you know, as a, as a longtime Beatles fan, who's not as much of a music nerd as both you and Rich are, um, I, I liked it, but I could tell that it was different. Um, but the song I have to admit is sort of grown on me the more I listen to it. Have you found that effect? I had the exact same reaction. Um, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, Lennon's solo catalog. Um, in fact, all of the Beatles solo catalogs are, are pretty hit or miss. Um, ironically, I would, I would, I would, well, not ironically, but I would kind of make the case that, that George Harrison probably had the best solo career out of all of them. Um, but, um, you know, which I don't think anyone saw coming considering what, it, what the, the, the men's talent of both Lennon and McCartney. Um, but it sounded very much to me like seventies era, John Lennon, which is not necessarily my bag. Um, having said that, um, there's a couple of things about it. One is that, look, you know, even bad John Lennon is far better than most people's, you know, most songwriters on, on their best day. Um, and <laughs> it's, it's, uh, um, it's such a durable melody. Like it didn't have any like amazing hooks or anything like that, but like, it's just so perfectly constructed. Like it, it, um, it feels it's like one of these melodies, it just feels like it's sort of always existed and someone kind of just pulled it out of the ether fully formed. Um, and so even though it kind of reeks of seventies solo John Lennon more than the Beatles in some ways, um, it's still just a great, great melody. And then the one thing I will say is, is that the song is an absolutely fantastic bridge that, and I don't know whether this was, you know, the contributions of the other guys in the band or just the way it was John Lennon wrote it, but it sounded, the bridge does sound like very much like classic Beatles in a way that maybe the rest of the song doesn't. So there's just this kind of like flourish there and you're like, Oh, there's the fab four. Um, and, uh, I don't know. It's still just, you know, great to hear it. And, and also just the, the story. I mean, it's just crazy that the same band is a number one hit in 1963 and 2023. In, or, or rather on Twitter X, whatever you want to call it these days, uh, in your post about now and then you said that it was an example of how AI can be a tool for good is how do you see this being applied in other areas in the music industry or in the, in music as a tool for good rather than as a tool to produce cheap content? Well, that is a really good question and a perceptive one, I think, um, because I mean, like this is the ultimate like case use, right? Um, you know, you don't want to be using AI to just like make up new songs that never existed from the band, um, and passing that off, you know, as, as some sort of like commercial product, I think, um, you know, this is kind of the ultimate test case in terms of like, you know, this is what AI can do. It can take like these old recordings and it can make them shine. It can, you know, make them, you know, usable for tracks to do other stuff, but, you know, I wouldn't want to just take like, say, I don't know, an old, you know, lead belly recording or something, uh, you know, from the thirties or whatever. And, you know, polish it up so that someone can do like a really commercial, like backing track to this, you know, old vintage blues singer. And I feel like, you know, you have to be very careful about how you're not like crapping on the legacy of, um, you know, really important musicians. Like I think a lot about, um, in this case, I remember, um, 
Kenny G did this thing where he played his like, you know, lame ass bluesy pentatonic run <laughs> over what a wonderful world was it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember that. Like the late nineties and it was kind of a hit, but like, it was just like, you know, someone came up and just like, you know, pissed all over the Mona Lisa or something. And I would really not want to have AI be used for that. I mean, like, I don't know, I guess if it were a situation where it was, you know, the context of like a very obvious remix or, you know, sampling kind of situation, it'd be permissible, but to like make, you know, new fancier, shinier sounding songs out of old vintage recordings, let alone long after the people are dead and without an estate or living musicians that can speak to the wishes of that person. Um, I could see, you know, a hundred years from now, this being, you know, I don't know, uh, artistically questionable people using AI, but I don't know. It's interesting that you mentioned the sampling aspect. Uh, in college, I studied audio engineering some, and I have friends who were really into making a form of dance music that's more popular in the United Kingdom, although it has a following in the United States known as drum and bass. And I still yeah. talk to these guys. And I was asking them recently how they separate out vocal tracks for these remixes. And it's one of those things where they're not making money, so it's not really actionable. So these pop stars leave them alone if they redo a Rihanna song or whatever. And they said, it's all AI now. And like, there's a website you can just get a subscription to uh, LALAL.AI and it can separate out these different audio and instrumental tracks for people making these remixes and things like that but they're not using it to your point to like polish up lead belly or something like that they're just doing very quickly what they used to labor to do using eq and things like that so it's just interesting that you mentioned that aspect yeah i you know there's one other thing here that you know i suppose is worth mentioning here um, in terms of what this ai stuff can do um you know I, i'm a guitar player and uh, there are apps now that what they'll do is they will strip, and it's, it's, I assume it's AI, it will do like a remarkable job of like stripping the guitar parts out of the song. So if you want to learn the song, you can play with like a backing track of like the original song, you know, as a way of uh, learning. And, I, you know, I, I think that that's like an extraordinarily like useful case. And, and you know, like I said, when the drum and bass example or the sampling thing, um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're using something to create something that's entirely new, um, I think that's, you know, that's fair game, you know, uh, obviously that can get a little porous around the margins in terms of determining like what is fair and not in terms of sampling, you know, um, but, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, 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 anything that, you know, spurs creativity and um, builds on something I'm, I'm all, I'm generally in favor of. Mark, let me ask you this. When, when this song dropped, um, that morning I happened to be driving to work, sitting in a massive traffic jam on the highway. And um, the whatever station I was on, the DJ came on and said, you know, it's really rather surreal that I get to do this, but I'm about to introduce to you a new Beatles song and uh, played it. <laughs> and um, I think it's interesting to sort of think about what that means. You mentioned it a little bit earlier, but let's expand on that for a second. I mean, this is a band that started, you know, in the 60s and is still in one sense or another producing new music or at least one last time. Um, what do you think that means for music, and how do you think that impacts people who listen to music today who maybe weren't exposed to the Beatles 
uh, back then or uh, when those uh, collections came out in the 90s or, or whatever? Like, how, how does that sort of tell the story of music today? You know, that's a really good question. And I, you know, have a lot of complicated thoughts on that. Uh, so I don't know, buckle up or, you know, get your beverage handy. But um, <laughs> um, so on one hand, you have to just accept that the Beatles are like totally sui generis. I mean, they're, they're, there's no one else like them. I'm just absolutely unparalleled what they accomplished in, you know, the eight years or eight or nine years or whatever it was they were recording music. Um, just an astonishing, you know, catalog. I mean, just, you know, brilliance through and through. So, um, you know, if anybody is going to be doing this kind of thing, 60 years apart, you know, you know, the Beatles are kind of entitled to it. Um, and, you know, probably worthy of that kind of, you know, attention, um, from popular culture in a way that many other, you know, artists may not be. Um, on the other hand, I do think that, to some extent that this speaks to uh, something I've, I've actually written about. Um, it's gotten me in trouble because I kind of made Taylor Swift the focus of my ire. Um, <laughs> but, um, um, you know, like I think Taylor Swift is a, is a good example of how pop culture is just kind of, you know, pop music in particular is just really kind of like stagnating. Um, if anything, like we're regressing in terms of like what the popular appetites are for, you know, sophisticated music. Um, so like, uh, to give you an example, I can't remember, there's this one like insanely overused chord change. If you're like really into music theory, uh, it's the one, five, six, four chord change. Um, and you know, I think Taylor Swift is like 200 songs or something and her entire like catalog and something like 40 or 50 of the songs are used the same exact chord change. And you know, if you want to go into songs that use some variation of the same chords, it's like, um, you know, almost double that or, or, or triple that probably. Um, and so there's not a lot of like actual melodic and more musical variety in, in, in uh, Taylor Swift's stuff. And you can look at that and it's, it's, it's like almost like literally quantifiable by looking at the sheet music. Whereas the Beatles, use that same, you know, one, five, six, four chord change, I think once in their entire catalog, um, you know, they were doing things, um, you know, back then that were so innovative and like remain innovative, you know, 60 years later. Um, you know, obviously there are a lot of people that built on what the Beatles are doing. I mean, and I, I'm when there is, you know, one sort of phenomenon now where like so much time has passed where it seems like I meet a lot of young people who are like sort of meh on the Beatles and it's really, truly astonishing and somewhat heartbreaking to me because they're basically like fish swimming around, you know, asking what, you know, what's water essentially, you know, when you're, you're denigrating the Beatles. <laughs> I mean, they were so influential in so many ways that like so much of the stuff they do like wouldn't exist in any way, shape or form without the influence of the Beatles and for them to like, look at the root source of this and be like, eh, that doesn't really mean a lot. Just, you know, I mean, one, it's just kind of the passage of time, you know, they can't possibly always appreciate the historical context. Um, you know, it's kind of crazy to think that when I was in high school, you know, the Beatles had only been broken up for about, you know, 20 years. Um, um, but, you know, so like it was much more sort of immediate, you know, the Beatles were much more sort of an immediate cultural force when I was growing up in the, in the 80s, in the early 90s. Um, um, and so I, I just think that that if this is 
giving younger people more of an appreciation for what the Beatles did and like what is actually possible with pop music in terms of like melodic variation and in terms of like the craftsmanship involved. And I think that's just, it's one of the best, most heartening things that's happened to pop music in, uh, you know, a decade or two, as far as I can tell. It also helps kind of close the circle in a way because the Beatles were so innovative in the studio beyond the songwriting, the level of quality they brought to their production and their mastering and their mixing was something that affected a lot of other genres besides rock and roll. And, you know, now they come back in 2023 and again, use this new technology. And so it, it should be an enlightening moment for people, but will they get it? (laughs) <laughs> that is a really, um, really smart observation, Rich. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's, no, I mean, it, it is. I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, the, what the Beatles did with multi-tracking in the 60s, like no one even began to realize the sort of like oral possibilities of what could be done in the studio, the, the way that the, the Beatles were like opening up people's eyes to that. I mean, obviously, I think the Beach Boys were probably up there with them in, in terms of what they did in, in uh, you know, using the studio as an instrument. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like the... The sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, irony or, or um, you know, uh, of them, you know, 60 years later doing this thing out of nowhere that is probably going to have a, you know, real, you know, AI is probably going to have a, a significant impact on pop music going forward, um, you know, and, and the Beatles are out of the gate with a good example of what can be done. Um, unfortunately, I'm, I think we're about to be hit with a glut of of, uh, you know, terrible examples. We're going to have a hit song at some point in the next five years or whatever that was entirely created by AI and it'll be some novelty thing and and it's going to be terrible when that happens, but um, uh, we're not there yet. Okay, so I want to close out on that, actually. That, that was my, my, my closing point here. So when we look at, you've mentioned that this is a good use case of AI, but obviously there are a lot of bad use case examples of what AI can do. Um, so if by some miracle or some uh, tragedy, um, AI creates a song that uh, becomes very popular. The trick now with AI is that if it, if AI creates something, it can't be copyright copyrighted because it wasn't created by a person. But if studios and and uh, movie houses and everything can figure out a way to get around that, then it, are are we facing a future where music and in fact most entertainment is just created by some sort of computer that they make money off of? Uh, that is the $64,000 question. And the question is, is now that the threshold for doing this sort of thing has been so lowered, you know, to what extent is it going to remove sort of the human element from these things? Um, and uh, I'm, you know, genuinely concerned about that. I mean, I don't know like what the rules are necessarily just because it's being done by, I don't think it necessarily means it can't be copyrighted. Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, but I, I have a feeling like, I, you know, I, I occasionally I'll see these like YouTube videos where they'll tell you like how to, you know, monetize YouTube by creating, using AI to, you know, mass produce AI, you know, video shorts that you can upload to TikTok and, and YouTube and Instagram reels or whatever. Like they're already doing all these kinds of things where people are trying to sort of exploit it to, you know, uh, capture certain markets and make money off it or whatever. And I can't imagine the music industry would be any different. 
different. Um, you know, I, I can see positive use cases. I mean, I can see like AI, like, a, you know, kid who's recording in his, you know, uh, basement on a laptop, um, you know, maybe AI can write, you know, drum tracks or something for him or, you know, there's, there's ways to incorporate it. But the wholesale creation of things, you know, people are really looking forward to this as a sort of creative tool, like lowering the barriers. But I don't know. I, I've come out the other side of this. Um, when I was growing up, you got to remember that, like, you know, uh, big recording studios and, and you know, big big record labels and movie studios and stuff had a, you know, a death grip on distribution channels and, and the amount of money needed to, like, finance a top quality project. Um, and, yeah, they, they produced a lot of junk, but they, they also produced things at such a high level that, that now that the markets have been totally disintermediated and now that, you know, the, the technology bar barriers been so lowered that almost anyone can use it, you're not getting a situation where, you know, you've got, you know, four brilliant musicians in the room with, you know, another brilliant producer in George Martin and then a bunch of, you know, engineers that have been, you know, interning for the BBC or whatever for 20 years that know exactly how to do everything like that kind of situation is going to produce a level of greatness with a bunch of human beings working with genuine experience working in concert is going to do things that are just untouchable in an era where everybody's recording on their laptop, let alone using computer programs to, you know, forego the creative process altogether. It is a scary thought, <laughs> but it's funny because when you when you put it that way, with with all the sort of genius that was in one recording studio, I mean, no wonder they produce such great things. Um, uh, it's pretty great. Uh, Mark Hemingway, it's always a pleasure having you on, man. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Yeah, anytime. All right, Rich. So now that we've talked about uh, the Beatles, one of the things that was so special about the Beatles is that uh, Paul McCartney was a left-handed player, and um, so that was something that was, it, it still is rare, but it was particularly rare then. Um, and the drink you came up with for today fits that to a T. This is called the left hand, uh, which if I read correctly, was done by the same guy who did Paper Plane, one of my favorite drinks. So you are uh, correct. walk us through the left hand here. Well, first I have to say that this was a moment of serendipity. Uh, I had a busy weekend and normally that's when I come up with these cocktails, and I had this one in my back pocket in case there was a weekend where I didn't have a chance to make a fresh cocktail. And it just so perfectly aligned in that, A, it's a riff on a classic, uh, a riff on the Boulevardier, and then it's called the left hand. And Ringo Starr was also left-handed, yes. even though he played a right-handed kit. So as I just said, the left hand is a riff, riff on the Boulevardier but it adjusts the proportion some and adds an ingredient that is not normally included in a Boulevardier. So you take one and a half ounces of bourbon, three quarter ounces of Campari, three quarter ounces of sweet vermouth, and three dashes of chocolate bitters. Put those in a shaker, shake them up well, and then strain into a chilled coupe glass, garnish with a brandy cherry or some other good cherry. And by lowering the amount of Campari and sweet vermouth and adding those chocolate bitters, it completely changes the Boulevardier in a way that one would not imagine that just those mild adjustments would make. It's, it almost becomes like a, it's like a chocolate covered cherry in a glass. And it is just a fantastic cocktail. 
perfect for this time of year now that it's mostly getting cooler. And uh, again, it ties into listening to thou now and then because of the two left-handed players. So definitely one I would check out. Okay, so I've got to ask a question about bitters. We talk about bitters on this show all the time. Maybe we should do a whole show on bitters, but um, uh, note to self. But um, <laughs> walk me through chocolate bitters. These are so, very popular. I mean, I, I, you don't see a lot of drinks with chocolate bitters. No, you don't. And there are a, a, a number of varieties on the market. I forget which one I have. The The recipe that we'll link uh, suggests Bitterman's. Uh, I had, I, I, I think it was an, Angostura chocolate bitters, but the thing about bitters is it's just a little bit of subtle flavor that you add to your cocktail. It's it's almost like adding salt or something to a, a food item. So it's not something that's, if done right, going to completely take over, but it is going to enhance it with the nature of that. And with chocolate bitters, it's not like adding you know, a chocolate liqueur or something like that, it's much more subtle. But in harmony with those other ingredients, you definitely get the chocolate flavor, but without, you know, over completely overtaking the cocktail. I just love, I love this. I, I love the idea of this. I love that it ends up tasting like a chocolate-covered cherry in a glass. I mean, that just, that sounds perfect. And frankly, if you're going to listen to a new Beatles song, why not drink a left hand? Exactly. Love it. Uh, All right. Thanks as always, Rich. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you, Brad.